0: We're going to be tracking through our material this semester with the help of an ancient Christian um, saying or a kind of poem, you could call it, called the Apostles' Creed. And every time as we start our class um, with these Monday lectures, we're going to actually recite the creed up to where we are that time. So that by the end of our semester together, hopefully you'll have the whole creed memorized, which is one of the goals I'll say it, then you say it. By the way, if you don't want to say the words to the creed for any reason, maybe it's because you don't believe it uh, or you don't believe it yet or you're not a Christian or you're a Christian who doesn't believe in creeds or whatever, that's totally fine. You don't have to. It's totally voluntary. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is a pretty safe kind of ground-level set of beliefs that Christians throughout the millennia have believed. So you're on pretty safe ground as a Christian. Um, This first week, for this first lecture, we just have two words. So it's pretty easy to memorize. It's the words, I believe. Do you want to try it? I believe, one more time, it's so weak, I believe, okay, that's it. We're going to use today, this week, as our topic, the book of Genesis, as well as a little bit of philosophy and theology to track with those words, I believe. We have two words, so how about two topics in a sense? First, the word I, (laughs) okay, the word I, what does it mean to be a human being? What is an I? If you want to start reciting a a, a creed of belief and you want to proclaim that you believe something, who are you? Who is the you? Who is the I that is doing this believing after all? And then we even get a second word in there, this word believe. Maybe you've heard in your life Christians say that they believe in God or that, you know, people say, do you believe in Jesus? You know, something like that. It raises an important question. It cannot just be shoved aside. What is belief? What does it actually mean to believe in something? Does, does belief or the word believe mean something different from knowledge? Like if I say I know something, is that somehow firmer than saying I believe? And then people use this word faith as well, get thrown in the hopper. What does it mean to have faith in something? Okay, so we want to unpack that. And we're going to use the book of Genesis to do it today, briefly. And by the way, these lectures on Monday are more like I'm seeing them as provocations to your reading. So I'm asking you this week to read the whole book of Genesis, okay? So I'm going to give you like some spoilers, some pointers, some things to think about, and some things to watch for as you read. So whether you're reading the Bible for the very first time in this class, which I know many of you are, that's awesome, um, or whether it's your 10th time reading the book of Genesis, it's a very popular book, I want you to read it, and I'll give you some clues about what to look for, especially cued into these two ideas of I, what is a human being, and belief, what does it mean to believe, okay. Where do we start? (laughs) How to start? Um, Does anyone know what the scientific definition is of a human being? I didn't actually know, I was trying to think like what is that and I tried to do some research online and I was looking. It seems like scientific definitions of what a human being are cluster around things like our brain size, especially vis-a-vis the size of our bodies and things like the thickness of our skull. Um, A lot of definitions also have something to do with our walking stance, walking upright. Um, And others cluster around the idea of speech and communication, although other animals can talk to each other like dolphins squawking and stuff like that. Um, we have very peculiar ways of speaking and of reflecting on our lives. So if you, if you go online or, or read a book and you look up what is the definition of a human, you're going to see those kinds of categories. But could, you know, could machines do that? What about AI, you know, like in the movies? Things like that could get really weird actually in our own lifetimes and challenge the definition of what it means to be a human. People have already suggested that that's happening now. Um, could get tricky for us. But is this it for us, you know, as humans? Is the meaning of human existence some combination of our physical attributes, our materiality? Or do we have something more, okay? What's our destiny, what's our meaning? What does the Bible have to say about that? I'm gonna open to the book of Genesis here. If you have a Bible, you can open with me. If not, you can just listen. Why don't we start in the beginning? Um, The book of Genesis begins, you're going to find out, with one of the most iconic opening lines in all of literature. It's so simple, so memorable. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, (laughs) okay? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Now, feature number one that I think is fascinating, maybe I'm just weird, I think this is interesting. The Bible gives no backstory to God. The Bible doesn't have like an Adventures of God prologue wherein God is like in outer space, palling around with other gods, or deities, or stars, or dark matter, or aliens, or whatever God does, but rather we find out from the book of Genesis right away in chapter one, God's activity is intimately concerned with the world, and this is something to watch for as you read Genesis that I think is really fascinating. God is obsessed with people, and God is obsessed with this world, Bible doesn't exactly say why right away. Maybe we'll get some traction on that as we go. But there's no backstory to God. We don't get to learn anything about God except through in Genesis what God does and how God relates to people. We're not even told, you know, what God looks like or, you know, what God sounds like or if there's even a look that God has or a sound. Just in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and we're introduced to a very bizarre scene in verse 2. The Bible, by the way, is divided into chapters. So somebody did this long after the Bible was written just to help people find stuff. And then somebody came along later and divided it into verses. So if we say chapter one, it's like the first part of the first book, verse one, verse two, all the chapters have subdivisions like that. Verse two says, now the earth, which apparently was there already or what's happening, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's kind of a spooky scene in a way. Still no people, still nothing. Although is darkness nothing? Maybe it is. Maybe it's just a lack of light. But there are waters. What are the waters doing there? Did God create the waters before verse one started? We're not really told. Here we get another another clue about how, this is just something we're gonna have to get used to as readers of the Bible. It's been tough for me to get used to it. I'm still not used to it, by the way. Which is that the Bible evokes a lot of mystery. And the Bible doesn't always explain things that you or I want explained. Right away, you'll have questions like, what about this? Why did he say that? Where did this happen? How did this happen? They're not even saying. I know, you're going to find that the biblical narrators have have a very bizarre style. Even literary theorists have written about this style. It's a very sparse. One literary theorist, Eric Auerbach, called it a haunted style, where we get just the bare minimum of information that you would need to get forward, but sometimes not a lot more. So that's bizarre right away. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is some kind of darkness with watery things. And God starts speaking, starts saying things, like verse 3. Let there be light. And there was light, and thus we get a day. So the Bible opens with the creation of a seven-day week and eventually culminates in the seventh day, a Sabbath day, which I guess in the Jewish calendar would be Saturday. Christians often celebrate a Sabbath on Sunday, but however you want to calculate it, a seven-day week. And there are various features here and I've got some readings for you this week for you to look at and you can consider those and so on. Um, I wanna focus though on a particular aspect of of the creation on our theme, namely the creation of people. It comes up pretty quick. I should mention though, I should should admit, I should say, even so, um, people are not the first thing that God creates in the Bible. Not first. I already mentioned God said, let there be light, so we have light. Then we have some kind of vault separating um, waters then we have sky and dry land, and then, and then trees and plants. This is verse 11, if you're following along. And then you have sun and moon and greater lights and lesser lights and things like that. Then by verse 20, you have the waters are teeming with fish and living things. Okay, where are the people? Where are the people? Then verse 24, the land produces creatures, you know, like mammals and stuff like that, wild animals and livestock and stuff. So all this actually happens in the order in Genesis 1 before people ever come on the scene. Is there some lesson here that, that a reader of the Bible is supposed to get? Like, you know, is it like some environmental, like, eco-conscious thing? You know, like, people are secondary, the land is first. Maybe. I mean, that's not an unreasonable thing to say, because it is true in the text that people do come later. There's a special amount of attention, though, devoted to people. I don't mean to elevate people beyond what the text does here, but there is there's kind of an elaboration. There's like an act-out, in a sense, of the narrator when we get down to this, um, this portion. This is in verse... 26 Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground." And then there's a little poem. It's like the editors of the Bible set it off like a poem in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them male and female he created them god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground so there's quite an elaboration that comes now that we get to the people in this text right um maybe we could break down a little bit of this language by way of trying to get a hold on this question um what is a human being in the biblical vision? First of all, what about this huge idea that people are created, quote, in God's image? What in the heck is that supposed to mean? It's not explained. It just says that we are created in God's image. There's no, there's no elaboration. There's no philosophy there. There's no theology. And um, we're created male and female in God's image. I guess that's the only elaboration that we get. Are we supposed to understand already? And this is a topic, by the way, that we will come back to. Um, later in the semester. Are we supposed to understand that this God, who is referred to, I I guess, grammatically in the language using male pronouns, is somehow both male and female? How could a God create people in his image? How could could God create a female in his image if God doesn't have a female image? Maybe he could just make one up, okay? But then maybe he could just make up the male image too. Is gender merely a way that we understand God, but not a way that God understands God's self or the world? We'll come back to that. I don't know, but male and female right off the bat, you do get that. People have speculated on all kinds of things about this image, right? That maybe it has something to do with, I don't know, I mean, start most basically. Does it have something to do with the way that we look? Do we look like God? Well, as already noted, we're not told how God looks, okay? We will find out later, fascinatingly, maybe even disturbingly, depending on your sensibilities, God does seem to have a humanoid type form later in the book of Genesis maybe even appearing just like a human. In fact, there's a chapter in Genesis, Genesis 18, just to cue you in for reading when you get there. There's a place where God appears to somebody and the person doesn't even think it's God, they just think it's a person. They, in fact, they think it's three people and then they're like, well, da da da." and then later it's just God and they don't really t- explain that slippage. So does God just appear to people in a human form? Are we supposed to think that God's image means that literally our physical bodies, such as they are male and female as Genesis 1:27 says, are somehow in God's image? I think interpreters of this have gravitated more toward spiritual and intellectual capabilities. It feels a little weird to think of God having a body. Is that how you think of God in the abstract? Like God is like a, like a mannequin, like a person. God has like, you know, parts and like a brain and heart and blood. Um, so people gravitate toward the creative aspects. Maybe to be like God as we find out that these human characters will means that we have some kind of creative power. Means that we think and reflect about things. Later, we find these humans that God creates. They're called Adam and Eve, two of the most famous characters in all of literature. You can read about their adventures this week. Um, Later, we find um, them naming animals and cultivating ground. Maybe, like God, we create things. We're creators. We're workers. We work. God works. This is the first thing that God does, actually, when he's creating the world. He works. Because otherwise, on the seventh day, what does the author mean when they say that God rested from the work that he's doing? Maybe this is part of what it means to be made in God's image, that we have a drive to work. Okay. But these are all just like things I'm just, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just talking off the top of my head here based on things I know about the tradition. The text doesn't say any of that outright. It just says that we're made in God's image, in God's likeness. Is there a difference between the image and the likeness? If not, why say two words there? If so, what is the difference between the image and the likeness? Oh, by the way, what about this um, ruling over the earth? Rule over the fish, verse 28. Has anyone in here ever ruled over a fish? Dominated a fish? If you're a fisherman, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) What does that mean? That language, I have to tell you, in Hebrew, that language of ruling and subduing is actually very, it's very harsh language, which is weird. It's the same language, in fact, if you'll take my good word authority for it, that's used to describe situations of slavery, actually, later in the Bible. Rule in that sense, like total control. Coming so close on the heels then that it does on this command uh, or or this declaration that humans are made in God's image, maybe this ruling and subduing has something to do with that image in the way that God also rules over nature and subdues it to his purposes already in chapter one. Maybe there's some sense that we're supposed to do that too. I don't know what kind of implications that that would have for how we treat our land or our earth. I presume it's like a good kind of ruling and care, but I'm just pointing out the language is very strong. It's very strong language about what that could mean, okay? So we have that opening chapter, very, very, very famous, okay? Made in God's image, male and female. Things seem pretty good at this point, okay? Um, In fact, the repeated statement that it was good is a statement you will see in chapter one. God made this, and it was good. In Hebrew, it's the word tov. Maybe we could speak Hebrew on the first day. I'll say it, then you say it, tov. Tov ma'od. Tov ma'od means very good, okay? So God says things are good, and then at the end, very good. This has profound implications then, and we should pause here. Profound implications about a biblical view of what a human being is, okay? People in the biblical vision of Genesis 1 are good. No qualifiers. People are good. The created order is good. And this is actually something, by the way, that distinguishes Christianity and distinguishes the biblical vision. I should say the biblical vision in Genesis 1. We'll just stick to that for now. We're not really to Christianity historically yet. We'll get there. Something that distinguishes this chapter from other creation accounts, I won't go so far as to say every other creation account in the ancient world, but a lot of them, and in a lot of mythology from the ancient world, the, crea- the beginning of the world is chaotic. It is, it is violent. There's something wrong, okay? Let, let me just point out one, one example. I'll write it on the board here in case you're taking notes and you don't know what I'm talking about. There's a creation story that was very popular in the ancient world, probably was written even before the Bible was written, called the Enuma Elish, E-N-U-M-A-E-L-I-S-H, Enuma Elish. It was a Babylonian creation story. And in this story, the origins of the world are in darkness and in waters, very much like Genesis 1. So there's maybe even like a little callback there, like Genesis 1 seems to resemble this story very briefly, if only in the sense of a darkness and a waters, a primeval water. But right away, those waters in the Enuma Elish are roiling. They're moving. And gods, gods and goddesses, for this is a world here the, in the Enuma Elish, populated with gods and goddesses, these gods and goddesses begin to fight each other. They begin to annoy each other. It's almost comic. At one point, one of the gods says that the younger gods are being too loud. Kind of like, you know, people have their radio on too loud in the world of the gods, and they're mad at the youngins. And there's a conflict between older and younger deities. Pretty soon there's a murder in this story, you know. There's a murder, and then there's a goddess named Tiamat. Tiamat, this ferocious like water monster who threatens the entire order of the cosmos. And the, other go- the gods are terrified, and finally they get a champion to kind of confront her named Marduk. Marduk's like, I'll take care of this, and he comes up, and he violently kills her. He dismembers her body. He slashes her guts. He shoots her with a bow and arrow. They take her blood and her body, and they kind of paste it up, and they're like, boom, there you go, the world. And they create the heavens and the earth out of her body. Then they take one of her allies, this guy named Kingu, and they cut him apart, and they kind of mash his blood and his bones up, and they say, ha, look what we've made. We've made a human being, some little aboriginal human, who will be, such a brilliant move, a slave to the gods. And the gods are like, yeah, they love it. They're so happy in this story. Because now they've got workers. They have people to make offerings for them and do their dirty work and dig canals and whatever kinds of things the dirty little humanoid has to do. So did the Bible's view of what a human being was and the goodness of creation, did it have competitors in the ancient world? Yeah, actually it did. It had competitors. It had competitor views, some of which were very popular. Ideas that humans were maybe created to be slaves in a kind of eternal system of slavery to deities and to each other. Of course, this question of slavery in the Bible is going to get complicated too, but we'll have to come back to that. Humans are an afterthought in this story. They're not really the main action. And the creation of the world is not the main action in the Enuma Elish either. Rather, the main action has to do with conflict and violence and darkness. I'm not trying to point this out to make some kind of cheap apologetic point, you know, like, "haha, the Bible's better, everything else sucks. I'm not trying to do that. But I am pointing out a contrast here, okay? The Bible's vision of people and of the created order is good. Are there problems that creep in later? Yes. How much later do they come up? Not that much later, okay? It's really quick that the problems come in. But we shouldn't just rush so fast past this Genesis chapter one. People are always so quick to do this, I've noticed, Christians in my life, and I probably am too, by the way. So quick to get to like the gory, interesting stories of Genesis. Because it does get gory and it does get interesting. If you're like, wow, is the whole book of Genesis going to be like this? Just like God creating things good and uh, in, in boredom? No, it's not gonna be like this. The people are gonna be there and they're gonna be doing all kinds of crazy things. And you're gonna get a sense from Genesis that what it means to be a human is to live in a very, very conflicted world, okay? Even so, I just wanna take this moment at 9.30 in the morning, as the clock ticks, just observe it, to observe that before any of that, in Genesis 1, there's a world that God creates that's good. And there's nothing that happens that can go back and like take an eraser and erase Genesis chapter 1. The text is there, okay? God's created order is good. Humans are made in God's image. And this is something that I think all Christians should agree on, can agree on about humans. That humans have absolute, inherent dignity and worth. From the very beginning, everybody, no matter what. That there's dignity and worth built in, no explanation, no further comments, no buts, no ands, no ifs, just full-on dignity and worth for people at the very beginning. This is the biblical vision of people that we start with. Yeah, but what about sin? But what about ugliness? But what about death? Yeah, I know, it all comes up. (laughs) It's coming. We'll talk about it here in a second. But people are made in God's image, and people are made good, and so is all the rest of creation, whatever else goes wrong. And that's important, I think, in the biblical vision. So watch for that as you read. Yes, yes, of course, watch for the problems, though, too. I mean, the problems come up so quickly. Genesis chapter 3, a famous chapter, so you'll get there. The first two humans God creates, Adam and Eve, they have a problem. I'll let you read about it. I won't spoil it, you know. But really, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are often considered a unit, sometimes called the primeval history or the primal history. And they sketch out a series of interactions that the earliest humans have in the biblical vision with God. And it's pretty, I don't know, it doesn't go that well. It just doesn't work, you know. People, as it turns out, and this is also part of our identity, according to Genesis. People are boundary breakers. We see a boundary, don't eat from a tree, God says. Then people are like, I'm gonna do it, you know? It's like those memes about like, you know, don't push this button and everyone's like, they're about to push it, you know? People are transgressors like this, why? People do it again at this thing called the Tower of Babel, you'll see that. There's something uh, having to do with this flood, which God kind of acts like a genocide on all of humankind except for one family. Now God's even turning violent against the people, you know? Things go downhill very quickly, okay? Genesis three has often been the focus here. There's a serpent. We are not told, we're not told where the serpent came from. He's just crafty, and he sort of dupes them into eating this fruit. Uh, the woman, and then she gives them to the husband, who's with her, and then they're doing this. And now things seem to go bad. There's a long poem in Genesis three, starting at fourteen. Cursed are you, God says to the serpent. God doesn't actually curse the people, though. You'll notice the language very carefully. God doesn't say cursed are is humanity. He says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil you'll eat food. And then the woman, too, gets, gets some problems in childbearing, and they go on and live like this. There are arguments, theologians, people who study scripture and the history of the Christian tradition really carefully, there are kind of arguments that, 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 th- that they've come up with about what it means to be a human, kind of based on this chapter, but things that just seem to be true about our experience. For instance, there's a Christian theologian named Augustine. I'll write his name up here. Augustine, kind of like it sounds. And then another guy named Aquinas, who lives a lot later. Augustine lives around the year 400 AD. Aquinas lives like in the 1100s-ish. Don't quote me on that. Look it up on Wikipedia, okay? Um, and in this theological tradition, there, there are things that we learn about humans, in particular, getting tr- traction this idea of the I, what is a human being, from Genesis chapter three. For instance, number one, we desire things that are bad, even though we know they're bad. Has anyone ever been there? I don't know why I do this. Like, you know, you want to eat things and drink things that you know you shouldn't eat or drink because you're already full, but like you just want it anyway. Has anyone ever wanted something that was bad? I mean, this is like a human universal. We want things that are bad, and not just stupidly, like, oh, I wanted a bad thing. I wanted to, you know, marry this woman, but I didn't know that it was going to be horrible, so I shouldn't have done it, you know. It's like, we know it's bad and do it anyway. Augustine and Aquinas looked at that and they said, ah, there's something there. There's some problem there that we have. Number two, we get hot and bothered. We get hot and bothered. We get really worried about the fact that our bodies decay, and this causes us suffering. In other words, an awareness of death. Seems pretty integral to what it means to be a human. Adam and Eve, in this famous story in Genesis 3, become aware at one point of their their death, and it causes pain. You don't want to think about dying, you know? Think of all the things we do to try to cover up for the fact that we know we're dying. The exercise routines, the makeup, the surgery, the hair dyeing, you know? Um, Think of the way we even dress people up in coffins, you know, putting makeup on them and doing their hair all right and putting clothes on them. Which leads to another thing, this issue of, it's, it's pretty much almost a human universal, you could quibble with some of this, that we don't like nakedness. We don't like it, okay? You have a bad dream, it's like in the dream you're naked in front of a bunch of people. Ah, you know. People have different standards, of course, about nudity in different places, but we wear clothing, we do this. Other animals seem not to do this or uh, at all or in the same way. We're also... And this is key, and this was very key for Augustine, very important for thinking about what it means to be a human. We may be able to return to some of this on this Friday or even the next Friday after that because we'll still be talking about this. We're restless. We are restless people. We're divided. We don't know what to do. It's hard to be happy. We want to be happy, but it's like things kind of go wrong, you know? We're intellectually restless. We're emotionally restless. You know, it's like I'll be walking through the quad and somebody waves to someone behind me, but I think they're waving to me and I wave to them, but then it turns out it wasn't for me and it's like my day is ruined, you know? (laughs) That's how easy it is not to be happy, right? It's so easy. Why does everything just go wrong so often? We're restless like that. We're searching. No, I want to do this. No, I want to be this. I want to be a doctor. No, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be this. Why are we like that? Those features of human beings are in fact reflected in Genesis 1 through 11. So as you read, I want you to watch for that. You're going to see that also Some of these characteristics, this restlessness, this dividedness, this desire. We have conflicts. Oh, by the way, there's one more thing to mention, too. Augustine and Aquinas were very big about this, and you see this as well in Genesis. We have, uh, how to put it, we have problems around the issue of sex. Like, we just have issues with sex. Like, sex is just an issue. We have problems with it. There's shame associated with it. You can't get around it. It's tough to do, and Genesis takes this right on. So as you read, look for that and see the various places that sex comes up, not just in Genesis 3 and later, but also in many other stories. There's a character named Abraham. His name at first is Abram, but then his name gets changed to Abraham. Maybe an implicit clue there that in the biblical vision, also people change. People are changers. And Abram becomes the focus of the story in Genesis chapter 12. This is very sweeping. Now I'm covering lots of ground here, okay? God comes to this guy, Abram, kind of more or less out of nowhere and makes him a proposal. The proposal is, this is Genesis chapter 12, if you're following along, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Do you notice how often the word blessed is coming up? Blessing is the key here. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here's a prime moment to consider both the meaning of the human being and now getting into our second topic, which we'll have to carry over into Friday. This question of belief. What does it mean to believe? How, if you're Abraham, are you going to believe a God like that? Maybe let's say Abraham lives in a world in which he thinks there are many different gods. He doesn't know. I mean, what's he supposed to think? And some voice comes to you and says, leave your home. You know, I don't know how it sounds like a ghost like that. Leave your home. Go to this new place. Leaving your home is a big deal. I mean, some of you as freshmen, who knows? Maybe you're from different places, not exactly from Newburgh, Oregon. You leave your home. I mean, there's a lot of anxiety associated with that. You don't do that lightly, do you? especially if you don't know where you're going. What if you had been called to go to a college by some divine voice and they didn't even tell you what the college was. They just said, go to college. And you're like, where? Just go. So you're just gonna leave, you know, pack your stuff up and just start walking down the road. That's what this guy is asked to do. Later in Genesis chapter 15, God's gonna promise this guy something, just again, like he did in chapter 12, that he's gonna have a child. And Abraham says, I don't think I'm gonna have a kid. I'm too old. And God says, you will have a child, trust me. And then there's a very important verse, one that's going to echo throughout Scripture and is going to come back much later in our course in this thing called the New Testament. That's the part about Jesus, much later. The text says that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God about what God was saying and God said, okay, you are righteous, what does it mean to believe? How could a guy like Abram and then all the other crazy weirdos you're going to be reading about, this family, I mean, they have tons of problems, this family that Abraham then births, tons of problems. How can they keep believing God? Philosophers have all kinds of ways of talking about this. We're going to find out about some of them on Friday. Super complex. Like, what is belief as opposed to knowledge? It could be this, it could be that, you know. I'll end by just saying this one thing, just to leave us with this thought, and then we'll kind of, we'll revisit this stuff on Friday, Okay. Um, much later in the Bible, there's a famous passage. It's in the book, called, a book of 1 Corinthians, if you're a Bible reader, chapter 13 in particular, where an author there is talking about love. He's just going on and on about love. Love is this, love is that, love is so great. Don't we love love? Love everybody. Okay. And then he gets into something kind of strange. He says something really specific. He says, yeah, but you know what? A lot of what we care about in this world is going to pass away. A lot of what we care about is just doesn't really mean very much. He says, for example, where there are prophecies, they will stop. Where there is knowledge, he says, knowledge. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, everything that you know. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, he says, what is in part disappears. Now here's the payoff. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Some translations for that at that point say, we only see through a glass darkly, a dark glass. We look in a mirror now, like in your dorm room, really nice polished mirrors, get out your phone, it's pretty much a likeness. But think about the mirrors people had in the past. Not good mirrors, like you know, they could look in a lake maybe, I don't know what they did, okay. They didn't really have glass like the way that we do. He's suggesting that the knowledge that we have on this earth, and this is one of the most famous Christians in the Bible, a guy named Paul, is suggesting that the knowledge we have is pretty shoddy. It's kind of like, we can see stuff, but it's a kind of dark seeing. It's like seeing through a bad reflection, like seeing yourself in the ocean water through a wave that's kind of like rippling and you can't fully see yourself. Do Christians claim, and will Christians claim throughout the Bible, that they are all-knowing? I mean, this is, uh, granted, uh, I think a conception sometimes people have about Christianity. Like, oh, Christians are those super confident people that think that they know everything. They know exactly who God is and what a human being is and what belief is. I don't know. I hear this guy saying, no. Actually, that's not possible, okay? He's saying the seeing that we have, it's a kind of dark seeing. It's a kind of imperfect seeing. And we have to go forward in some other way. We'll be exploring more on Friday what those other ways are, how we can believe, going a little bit further, engaging with the text on what it means to be a human being. And we'll get some help to do that from some philosophers and maybe a psychologist as well. Thanks for hanging in there today.